In an interview with the French newspaper Le Figaro, just a few days before he was killed, Sergio mentioned to the journalist how frustrated he was during the debates of July 29th in the Human Rights Subcommittee meeting. Voices were raised to express the deterioration of the humanitarian situation in Iraq. And that was one more clash among the United Nations and the Americans' administrations and another meeting where voices were raised. Several days before and on July 15th, Sergio met with Bremer to discuss Abu Ghraib's prison and the two men had a big argument, as I mentioned in episode four about the two men. Bremer refused the idea of holding elections in Iraq that early of the occupation. Instead, he wanted to write the constitution, or to be more precise, he wanted to see the constitution be, being written. But per Sergio's expertise, first you have to hold elections, and second, transfer power over to the Iraqis, then the constitution would be written. And that irritated Bremer. In mid-August, a Palestinian journalist was killed by the U.S. troops, and civilians were being killed. Sergio's willingness to present a detailed report to the Security Council on America's crimes and violations in Iraq was serious. And Bremer knew about it. The question here, how did Bremer know? Did Sergio tell him, hey, Bremer, I'm going to write you up in a report and present it to the Security Council. No, guys. Such a scenario you only see in movies, like Greg Barker's film, Sergio, the Netflix production that came out in April. Guys, the killing of Sergio is not a story or a movie. We're here to deal with facts. But see, the director, Greg Barker, tried to use some imagination, and it wasn't all bad. For he tried to depict Bremer as the villain, and he showed that Bremer knew Sergio was on that day in uh, August 19th to report him and uncover his crimes, as we saw in the biopic. So the actor who is playing Sergio Dumelo tells Bremer in the movie, if the elections are not legitimate, then we all can go home. The actor playing Bremer answers, I, deci I decided there won't be any elections. Sergio answered, I decided something too. Tomorrow morning, I will send the Security Council a full dossier about the occupation and their human rights violation. Then they go back and forth, the two men. Then they go back and forth. Uh, and then Paul Bremer tells Sergio, attacking the U.S. is not the best way to become the next Secretary General, Sir Sergio. The movie Sergio showed that Bremer knew about the dossier over the phone. And there was no way Sergio was going to tell Bremer of, this, of his plans. Then the question today is, how did Bremer know about DeMello's plans? Here is my theory how Bremer knew what was happening at the UN building, and specifically at Sergio's office. From day one, Sergio arrived in Baghdad, his office was being under an audio surveillance. Since DeMello's office was directly across from the U.S. Army presence 
I mean, the 411th Civil Affairs Battalion, about 100 meters away from the Canal Hotel. It was very convenient to eavesdrop on the UN from that location across. Each conversation that took place in Demela's office was being recorded by the U.S. intelligence. And this is how it works. There's a laser mic technique. This is used in most countries. I mean, it's common knowledge. I'm not bringing this from my imagination, by the way. So this laser mic launched from a transmitter could be easily directed from the American outpost for 11th Civil Affairs to Mr. DeMello's office window. And this laser mic would read the sound waves from the window. It converts vibration into sound. I mean by focusing or shining the beam into the window and the ray, so to speak, which simply bounce back towards you with a complete audio access. The transmitter and receiver's technology do not work if the windows are coated with film SD2500 that blocks the beam from penetrating. So I wonder if you ever paid attention if you're uh, near a U.S. government building uh, ever or uh, U.S. embassies around the world. They all have their windows coated with this SD2500. The office of Mr. DeMello's windows, of course, were not protected with that film SD2500. Actually, the windows in Mr. DeMello's office were hardly covered with the anti-shattering film as we covered that on episode 5 titled Location. If you think this is absurd and the U.S. didn't do this kind of surveillance, then you don't know how the U.S. authorities work. U.S. Army asked to lease the Iraqi School of Tourism from the Ministry of Education and convert the school into the outpost for the for 11th uh, Civil Affairs Battalion. Do you think the U.S. military did that only to protect the United Nations next door? I don't think so. First, I mean, yes, they were there to protect the U.S. campus, but second was to watch the United Nations from a close proximity. Actually, this system, the eavesdrop, is done regularly by countries to eavesdrop on embassies. Uh, it's kind of common. Do you remember the killing of um, Saudi journalists uh, in Istanbul? Turkey was able to eavesdrop on Saudi Arabia's um, consulate. That's why in October 2018, when Jamal Khashoggi was slaughtered inside the Saudi consulate, Turkey was able to get a complete audio tape. How do you think Turkey's authorities did it? Did they bug the office? Uh, did they put a small microphone under the Saudi's uh, desk? No. Most likely, they used the laser mic. This technique is known am- among states, such as Israel and many countries. Look it up online. Even some teenagers tried to make their own transmitters that uh, would read audio waves. I love stuff like that. I think this is another reason I, I'm doing this podcast. Let's go back to the Canal Hotel's uh, UN Locations eavesdrop. And what I am trying to say here, the School of Tourism converted into a small base for the 411th Civil Affairs. In it, some kind of military intelligence team at that location would fix the laser mic directly to Mr. DeMello's windows and would listen to his entire conversations. I'm not sure if they had another mean to spy on their equipment, 
and uh, computers that I don't know. All I know is uh, they were able to collect audio surveillance. So this, so this is how the Americans knew of Demela's plans, his movements, and his business. And that same evening, Sergio was to give a speech. In it, he was going to condemn the U.S. military. And specifically over the killing of an Iraqi child and his mother. They, they were killed the day before. So by now, beloved listeners, you perhaps found out that what I am aiming for is Jerry Paul Bremer III was one of the people out there who benefited from the killing of Sergio DeMello. 20 days after the murder of DeMello, Paul Bremer published an, what, what do you call that? Uh, op, op-ed? Opinion? Op, opposite editorial? I believe, yeah. On uh, He published it on Washington Post, titled Iraq's Path to Sovereignty. In a form of seven steps in them, he suggested to delay elections and extend the presence of the CPA in Iraq. Those two things specifically Sergio opposed, for Sergio was uh, once again pushing for elections and for the occupation to end. Paul Bremer wrote on that Washington Post on September 8th article that the elections should be put on hold for the Iraqis need a new constitution. As you see clearly, he was delaying the election. By the way, Bremer didn't tell anyone about his seven steps mentioned in the article before he, uh, it was published. That includes uh, Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, and of course, Condoleezza Rice. They were all shocked to read uh, the article in the morning papers. Two months later, a, secre- uh, as, uh, a security situation in Iraq worsened. Bremer was called for emergency meeting in early November. And Bremer's relationship uh, cooled with Rumsfeld after this article, by the way. For Rumsfeld was, after all, Bremer's boss, but Bremer didn't look at it that way. He always acted as if uh, his only boss was George W. Bush. As I mentioned in early episodes, that Bremer arrived in Iraq with contracts in his pocket. And Sergio was going to stop all that by telling the coalition forces to leave. So the United Nations will rebuild Iraq their way, the right way. Sergio didn't believe in Security Council Resolution Number 1483 that gave the U.S. the entire authority in Iraq. Therefore, Sergio was going to use his position as High Commissioner for Human Rights by condemning the coalition forces led by Bremer. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Bremer orchestrated the entire bombing of the United Nations facility. And this is our subject of this podcast. And at last, there is an answer to the question, who killed DeMello? Paul Bremer III, the United States envoy in Iraq, killed Sergio Vieira DeMello. Someone might say, just because the two men disagreed and because Sergio was going to condemn Bremer, that's not enough to have Bremer want to kill Sergio Dumelo. Well, that's true. The disagreement was not enough to commit a, a murder. But I myself thought that Dumelo was going to leave Iraq in just six weeks. Why kill him? End of September, Sergio was leaving. 
But one more time, I repeat, Paul Bremer knew that Sergio was going back to Geneva, to his old post as High Commissioner for Human Rights. And he was going to hold the Americans accountable for the human rights violations against Iraqi civilians and journalists. That's why Sergio had to die right there in Iraq. I thought a lot about how easy it would have been to assassinate Sergio by a bullet instead of blowing up the entire building and, and uh, without killing civilians. Especially knowing that Paul Bremer sent that morning uh, two American guests uh, to Sergio's office for a four o'clock meeting. He knew there were at least a couple of Americans in that building were guaranteed going to die. That morning, he met with uh, Gilosher and Arthur Helton, whom he sent to Sergio's office. Does that mean he wanted Americans to be collateral? Here's a chilling fact for you all. Each country gives away a handful of its citizens for the biggest cause. There's only one country that does not kill its own people, and that's the state of Israel. This is why I told you in episode six, the victims, a list uh, episode about Dr. Ali Ahmed Sousa, who was killed that day. She was a full-blooded Iraqi Jewish, and her father was a traitor. However, Israelis did not kill him. Let's go back to our subject. To blow up Sergio's office, that itself was a successful mission. The results were the UN altogether had to leave now, even if a few Americans were killed. The UN failed in Iraq. And now the CPA was all by itself. They'd control the rebuilding, create a chaos, start a civil war, and send more troops to Iraq. A bullet in Sergio's head wasn't going to be enough to stop the UN mission. Bremer wanted to see Sergio's team destroyed for there was a possibility Sergio's team would have continued without DeMello, for it was, a, it was a strong team. They could have had a new chief and start all, all over again and continue with their own mission. But the United Nations left, and they didn't come back to Iraq till late 2004. And by then, Paul Bremer was gone. The other reason Bremer saw that the entire UN building had to come down is to show to the world that the terrorists and Al-Qaeda were here in Iraq. Within five weeks, three big incidents happened in Iraq within a short period of time. First, bombing at the Jordanian embassy early August. The second, the UN bombing. And the third one was killing of Mr. Al-Hakim, who was killed in a car bomb end of August. Al-Hakim was the... Uh, Islamic cleric who was pushing as well for the occupation to end. A year later, the Iraqi chief of the Provisional Government Council, Azadeen Salim, was killed as well in 2004. His attack was blamed on a suspect caught in 2005 by the U.S. troops, and that's Abu Omar al-Kurdi, who was allegedly behind the killing of 17 Italian soldiers. Uh, that's in uh, November. And that's, they were part of the uh, coalition forces. And they were killed in Nasiriyah. By the way, this man that I told you about in episode three, Abu Omar al-Kurdi, he was mentally not right. 
Can you imagine? He was called a bomb expert and he was behind three big operations. He was detained by the U.S. military in a U.S. base and the United Nations sent a team uh, part of their uh, investigations to interrogate him, Abu Amar al-Kurdi. And um, he was a simple man who was in um, the 90s jailed by Saddam for uh, five years. And now he was defending, uh, ironically, he was defending Saddam's, uh, Iraq Saddam. A simple man that conducted three major operations, bombing of the UN, killing of Mohammed Baqil Hakim, and the killing of Iraqi uh, politician Azadine Salim. Two years after being detained in the U.S. custody, Abu Omar al-Kurdi was handed to the Iraqis and he was executed. Within like 20 days, he was executed. The question here is, how did the U.S. intelligence and the U.N. investigation team allow the Iraqis to execute the only suspect behind the U.N. bombing? For instance, what was the real name of the suicide bomber? So all the information were gone by killing this guy. We still don't know. Who did these allege the suicide bomber? I'm talking here about the Egyptian that we talked about in the past, uh, Abu Farid al-Masri. What was his real name? This, these are all just shabby information. So if Abu Omar al-Kurdi was, if Abu Omar al-Kurdi knew about the entire operation and how he orchestrated it, then why kill him before getting all the info from him? One more observation I had uh, for this episode is the parking lot that day of August 19th. But before I want to bring to your attention an article in French I read, um, it says that on Friday, August 22nd, a United Nations worker based in Europe told a French newspaper that a United Nations security worker at the Canal Hotel refused to reinforce security of the facility without Sergio's knowledge. Most likely, that worker would be a retired U.S. Special Forces. I do not have his name. It was never mentioned. See, the deal is I never knew there was a U.S. worker at the security that worked directly for the U.N. I thought they were all uh, European, came from Geneva with the, the A-team, the Sergio's team. A few months ago, when the film Sergio came out, Okay, here, uh, you remember in uh, episode six uh, titled Black Tuesday, I mentioned that uh, late morning of uh, that August 19th, Sergio met with Khalid Mansour, the spokesman for World Food Program. He's an Egyptian UN worker, and he wrote an article in Arabic in May of this year after the film Sergio was released. And he wrote about this um, American man, a security uh, man in charge, and he said, that he was nervous on that day when he saw Khalid Mansour arriving to the UN Canal Hotel with another coworker when they tried to park. And this guy nervously uh, told them to move uh, their car away from a designated area for UN vehicles uh, only. And this made me suspect the connection between uh, this and the parking lot I mentioned in last episode that an Iraqi driver at the UN uh, told me, the, personally, I know him, he told me they uh, were dismissed early that day. See, this is important 
For someone from the American side wanted the parking lot virtually to be empty from people for two reasons. They will kill fewer people. And the second reason is they, if they survive, they won't be uh, any witness. And the third is Iraqis smoke a lot. And someone might smoke if uh, the smoking near the truck loaded with ammonium nitrite might ignite the truck prematurely. I strongly believe that no one in the U.S. Capitol ordered to kill DeMello. The U.S. military commander Ricardo Sanchez had no idea either. By the way, Brummer and Sanchez were like oil and water. They never got along. So Brummer orchestrated the entire killing with U.S. intelligence and the aid of Iraqis. Someone was hired for the job. A group of people with the help of Iraqis, of course, and U.S. intelligence, as I mentioned, and someone that is totally corrupt. Let's say someone like Bernard Kerrick, perhaps. I'm not accusing Kerrick of killing DeMello, but he was in Baghdad, and he said he was one of the first people who arrived at the scene, and he claimed he saw a face of the bomber. And then he uh, told the Guardian newspaper, as we said in last episode, and uh, that he saw flesh of um, a burnt flesh at the, at the cap left from the incident. See, all that, the face, the left hand found on top of the civil affairs roof on the 411th uh, Civil Affairs Battalion uh, post, these are allegations to show you there was a suicide bomber. So I want to make this clear. There was no suicide bomber who drove the truck into the U.S. that day. As you remember in episode three, in rolling out the terrorists, I mentioned that the truck was loaded at a close proximity for its high content of explosives made it dangerous to drive all the way from Ramadi to Baghdad. For that, that's about 120 kilometers. That means most likely the truck was loaded in a close proximity. For my version of the story, the truck was loaded the same day of the attack, and it happened in a nearby place and a secure area. The question would be, where is that place? In episode 5, I mentioned that the UN was located by Army Canal between two bridges. They're called Mashtal Bridge and Baladiyat Bridge. In that episode, I should have mentioned that the U.S. military bombed early when they invaded Iraq in March of 2003, a very sensitive location in Baladiyat neighborhood, and that's Saddam's Directorate General Security, best known in Arabic for Mudiriyat al-Amn al-Am. And the U.S. military intelligence took over the facility office, and the U.S. military intelligence took over the facility officially in May on that year, along with a small army formed called Iraqi Liberation Army and their followers of Ahmad al-Shalabi, who back then, he was the head of the Iraqi government council that Sergio and his team had formed. The weirdest thing is Ahmad Shalabi warned the Americans in the green zone that there was a kind of a soft target to be hit by terrorists. And this is in August, y'all, 
I wonder if his uh, little army based on at that complex at the Mudiriyat al-Amn al-Amma, if they uh, leaked some information to uh, to their chief, and uh, I really cannot tell. But uh, I strongly believe the truck was loaded at the Directorate General Security, where the U.S. intelligence was. And this is like a mile away, guys, uh, from the Canal Hotel. And the same day, of the attack, but uh, the ammonium nitrate was added to the bomb component right before driving to the UN campus. Because as I mentioned before, it's dangerous to drive a massive explosive truck with high ignition element for a premature explosion might occur. I mean, if someone smokes even from a short distance, that might cause the whole truck to go off early. So by then, Everything was going on schedule. Sergio's guests arrived early. They were seated in his office, but something happened that day. Carolina Larriera, Sergio's partner, who was at the location with him, she told him, Sergio, there's someone from the Red Cross have told me that there are rumors of some people outside the UN building. They're taking license plates, numbers, for the in and out vehicles coming in and out the uh, UN facility. Okay, let me explain here uh, about the uh, Canal Hotel and there and its two major gates. One is an entrance and the other one was an exit. But during the war, and to control in and out vehicles, the uh, back gate was locked with a strong metal chain, and only the entrance gate was used for both traffic. For it's easier to man. Uh, the uh, security. So on that August 19th, there was heightened security at the entrance for someone started a rumor uh, that someone was taking license plate numbers and Iraqi workers and United Nations security people were distracted by that and focused only on uh, the front gate. That means the uh, back gate was not being watched. It was never uh, watched, by the way. UN driver worker that I told you in the last episode that I know him personally, he uh, told me there was uh, some kind of construction going on at the site. And uh, to see trucks in and out was kind of, it, it would happen, especially uh, cement mixers. So someone was freely by the back gate. Someone undid the chain and drove the truck. And the security people were busy at the entrance. And the uh, truck driver parked the truck under Mr. DeMello's office, left the area calmly towards 411th, and ignited the truck remotely from the civil affairs outpost. Perfect crime. Right after the blast, the people at the 411th civil affairs, they came running. I'm sure they were all hiding in a bunker or something. But William von Zehel, the Mercedes-Benz guy from last episode, he said that he ran up to the roof to see where was uh, the attack. And he noticed, uh, he saw that it was a neighboring uh, canal hotel that was on fire. But he didn't notice a fresh hand holding a steering wheel. He ran, I mean, I know a lot of army people and they all have that sense of surrounding. But this guy, he just, I don't know, maybe he was shocked or something. I have no idea. 
But he mentioned a weird detail in one of his interviews in actually a Sergio's documentary. He said that when he went down to the shaft where Sergio was trapped, he removed his body armor. It's kind of weird after, what, uh, four years when they started uh, preparing for the 2009 movie? I don't know. But he, he did mention that little detail that I find it very weird. Like, oh, I removed my body armor. This is a silly detail, yes, but he was trying perhaps to show that his life was less important than the uh, two men trapped. But it's just weird, like, okay. But, but in the same Sergio movie, at, at the end of the movie, it shows that he was wearing his, his uh, body armor. But that doesn't mean anything either. He can take it off and put it on anytime. Maybe he needed it to go inside so he will put all his flashlights and stuff. I don't know. I would. And another thing about this guy is the Mercedes-Benz guy. He said he didn't know who Sergio was when he went down and he uh, asked about their names. And like, oh, Sergio, yes, I heard that name. Really? You've been there with, with, with the, in that facility for over two months and you only heard about someone called Sergio? So this Fonzejo, one more claim he did is he, he said that Sergio told him to not let them pull the mission out. Guys, for some reason, I don't believe these are Sergio's words. I mean, it doesn't matter at this point, but the mission was over. Sergio survived the blast a few hours, but as soon as his visitor, Gilosher, was rescued, Sergio died. I think he was finished up. For he died... The minute Paul Bremer arrived to the site, it's amazing how Greg Barker, the director of the Netflix movie, depicted uh, Bremer uh, as soon as he got off uh, Hummer and he said, is he still alive? That question itself is a bomb. The FBI team was rushed to the area with the forensic experts. They found a few pieces of the truck, a bomb. A bomb expert found a small shard of uh, twisted metal in shape of a banana. And he said, I know what kind of bomb it was. And he showed it to Thomas Fuentes, the head of the uh, FBI. And what, who had no idea what that was. Uh, and then the other man added, that's a 1970s Soviet-made aerial bomb. By the way, uh, you remember last time I mentioned about the uh, death certificates? The two Sergio's death certificates? The second death certificate was forged by the United Nations. Bremer was in a meeting when someone called and uh, Pat Kennedy, who was part of the uh, U.S. Embassy, he um, handed him a small paper while they were sitting in the meeting at uh, around 4.45. And he, right away, he sent Pat Kennedy to the site. And then Pat Kennedy called Bremer uh, from the United Nations site, and uh, Paul Bremer had the weirdest reaction. Let me read to you what uh, Paul Bremer wrote, actually, in his book, My Year in Iraq. Pat Kennedy called and... Uh, from this site a half an hour later. The United, and he said that the United uh, Nations 
compound has been virtually destroyed. The scene is horrible. They've got nothing, no office, no places to sleep or work. And this was the answer of Paul Bremer. I mean, he dared to write it. Come on. Tell them that we'll make available housing, medical care, and food in our compound for however long they needed. I told Scotty Norwood to have 250 carts and uh, they would be moved into a large ceremonial hall in the palace for the United Nations and to mobilize our health ministry officials. What the hell? What kind of reaction is that, Paul Bremer? Jeez, God. Talking about a weird guy. You're, the, you're a weirdo, Paul Bremer. After Sergio's death and 21 others, the first phone call between Bremer and President Bush was, even before talking about the United Nations bombing, Bush promised Paul Bremer to send the CPA $20 billion in cash. You heard that right, cash. And that's Iraq's money. That was from Iraq's frozen assets throughout the years of embargo. Later on, there was about, I think, nine or $12 billion, and that's your taxpayers' money. Later on, Bremer's position in Iraq was under scrutiny when he had to appear in 2007 in court and give his testimony about mishandling money. I mean, there was a committee reformed to oversight the investigation of waste, fraud, and abuse in federal spending. In all this, ladies and gentlemen, I am not excluding Iraqis as a nation from all what happened to Sergio de Mello. We are known for being murderers, saints and prophets we killed, and now we didn't deserve Sergio de Mello. Till next season, I will leave you with these words. What you know today can affect what you know and do tomorrow. But what you know today cannot affect what you did yesterday. In the next season, we will talk about the character of Zarqawi. Please take care and have a good season. Mm-hmm.